the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. My Lord and my God, I firmly believe that you are here, that you see me, that you hear me. I adore you with profound reverence. I ask your pardon for my sins and the grace to make this time of prayer fruitful. My Immaculate Mother, Saint Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me. Chapter 4 of St. John tells us about the moments after the baptism of the Lord in Judea when all these people would go to St. John the Baptist and he would baptize them all and how Jesus himself appeared there to the surprise of many and, and certainly to the surprise of St. John and yet he baptized him and with that gesture, the Lord gave water this, this power, this potential to sanctify. That's why the central gateway to becoming a Christian is baptism. And it is through water and the Spirit that this happens because water fell off the pure flesh of the Word incarnate. Before that, if you like, it hadn't really done that. Well, we know that the Pharisees got wind of this situation, and uh, they heard that the disciples themselves were baptizing people, and they got somewhat irritated by this, they were not simply curious, but in fact, they were quite hostile. So in front of that hostility, Jesus goes back now to Galilee, where he had started his apostolate. He had been in Judea, now he goes up north to, to Galilee. But to get through there, to get to Galilee, he had to go through Samaria. And he ended up going through a town of Sychar. And that town had ancient roots. It was like going through, you know, a very historical place that people knew about. It had boasted of having the field that uh, Jacob had given to his very famous son, Joseph. It also boasted having the well where Jacob had encountered uh, Rachel. But now it was a Samaritan town. It was originally a good place in the sense that Jews had inhabited there, but now they were Samaritans. Who were the Samaritans? Well, they, they certainly had common roots with the Jews. They both came from the family of Jacob centuries earlier. But after the terrible invasion of the Assyrians in the 8th century, the Samaritans ended up... Uh, intermarrying with Gentiles and they took up certain pagan customs and forms of worship and uh, the Jews found this absolutely abhorrent so there were these Samaritans with Jewish roots but with weird Gentile practices 
And then we know the people of Judah were also exiled from, uh, from Jerusalem, ended up in, in Babylon for a number of years. And they finally came back to Jerusalem, and there the most important thing for them was to rebuild the temple. And uh, as the different tribes found out about this, the Samaritans in particular went to Jerusalem and basically offered to help. They said, well, we hear you're rebuilding the temple here. That's great. We can give you a hand. And uh, the people of Judah said, I don't know. You guys, you have these weird practices, these weird, way of, weird ways of dressing. And they basically said, no. And it was a firm no. You can't help us rebuild this temple. So they were, the Samaritans were rejected, were rejected. Because of the practices that they had adopted, they were shunned. So that was the origin of this hostility that was like a long-standing feud that ensued between the Jews and the Samaritans. So the Samaritans said, well, they don't, they don't like us. Well, too bad. We're going to start our own temple in Mount Gerasim. And you could say that the tension between these two peoples was like, was palpable. It was like a civil war, practically. And uh, even at one point, John and James, as they were going with Jesus to Jerusalem, they passed through a Samaritan town, and they said to Jesus, they actually said to Jesus, Lord, uh, do you mind? We could just nuke these guys. We're going to have fire sent down from heaven and destroy these people. And of course, our Lord had to say, guys, cool it. Just go easy, you know. Maybe we don't agree, but we don't have to destroy them. So, as they were going through Samaria, now, on the way to Galilee, the apostles were still filled with this kind of head trash, bad thoughts, anger, resentment, even a violent spirit. That's what you might call head trash, this stuff that swirls around in our head. And it was a lot of stuff that was really not compatible with being a good disciple of Jesus. What's head trash? Head trash are all those toxic thoughts, maybe bad memories that sort of swirl around in our head. They spin around like a spin cycle in a washing machine and they end up since it's garbage they end up creating a really unpleasant odor in our own head and uh, it also comes when we don't deal enough with all the sources of all that sweetness and that goodness that the Lord offers us through his grace we kind of we kind of forget it or don't really accept it. We just allow this kind of head trash to circulate in our head. And we can lose a sense of the great graces that we have received. I don't know if you saw this morning in the paper the story about uh, a, a family from, I believe it was, well, from out east, I think it was from Nova Scotia, where the wife had three very very precious rings from her family, from her engagement, from her married, marriage ring, her wedding ring. 
and she was cleaning them and uh, they were very precious to her because she would wear them all the time but she was cleaning them and she put them on a paper towel just to dry and for some reason she ended up going to work and her husband summarily took the paper towel didn't see them and threw them in the trash and uh, she gets to work and she says, oh my, my rings, oh my rings so she called her husband and she asked him, did you look at the counter? What's, where's the counter? He said, oh yeah, I threw it out on the garbage. What was that? Oh my God, it's my ring, it's my ring. So uh, she just took off back home, wanted to find those rings, and they actually went after the garbage truck, and they actually had to go through these, this four-hour search in the garbage truck looking for these rings. And the husband said, you know, I, I went through really gross stuff, you know to find those rings. But finally, they found a piece of paper that had her address on it, and there, and there it was, finally. They, one of the workers actually found the rings. And that's a bit what happens to us. We've been given these rings. We've been given these graces. We've been given these sacraments, sacrament of matrimony, which is meant to be a symbol and, and a, a sign of our love for Christ through matrimony and and. The head trash seems to take over and, and make everything smelly. That's a little bit what was happening there between the Jews and the Samaritans. On that occasion, they just went to another town. In this case, they're coming through and they encounter, they encounter this woman. Well, in fact, uh, the disciples go and get some provisions to eat. And uh, the Lord appears there in Sikar at a well. It was the very same well that Jacob had encountered and met Rachel. Now the Lord is meeting a Samaritan woman. When Jacob met Rachel, it was one of the most beautiful scenes of love that I've ever read in uh, Genesis 29. Jacob met Rachel, and he was just absolutely flummoxed. He fell in love. It was love at first sight when he saw Rachel. Rachel was the daughter of Laban, who was his uncle. And when he saw her, you know, he had been in a very difficult situation. He, his brother uh, Esau was trying to kill him, and so he took off. And there he met uh, his uncle. Laban and Laban said, "Look, you can, you can, no problem, man. You can work for me, and uh, you know my daughter Rachel is here. So maybe you know if you work for me for seven years, well, maybe you can marry her then. And so, okay, you have to work for seven years in order to marry somebody in the heat and so forth. Well, Jacob said, no problem, man. And the the best line is, so Jacob served." seven years for Rachel and yet they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. When we're in love just time flies by. Just flies by. And while we know how the story continues he ended up getting tricked by his uncle but still he had to work another seven years. That's, that's 14 years but they were like nothing because of the love he had for her. And it all started with that encounter at the well of Sychar. Now, hundreds of year la years later, Jesus meets this unnamed woman from Samaria who is drawing water. 
So we got a picture of the scene now. It's from chapter 4 of St. John. She is there, and of course she's a Samaritan. Samaritans are not supposed to talk to the Jews. The best way they could resolve this situation is just don't talk. Don't even engage, they thought. The hostility was so great. The Lord is tired, and he's thirsty. It was hot. He's exhausted. And it is quite touching for us to see that Jesus, who is perfect man, perfect God, would take on also this fatigue. Maybe he had a headache. And nevertheless, he could sanctify this tiredness, this exhaustion. So the next time you get tired, which could very well be today, or tonight, turn to Jesus. Look at a crucifix. If you're tired, it's a sign that you're doing your duty. It's permitted by the will of God. And we may experience it daily. We may experience it at night. We may experience it in the morning. Maybe you're experiencing it right now. You're tired because you didn't sleep well or something. And we know the opening line. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. She's there at the well. He says, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked, and he would have given you living water. That's a beautiful line. If you knew the gift of God. Si shiris donum dei in Latin. Much has been said about that line. If you just knew the will of God. If you knew, rather, the gift of God. Well, which the will of God is also a gift. It is as though the tables are turned now with the story of Jacob and Rachel. Now it is Christ and the Samaritan woman. And that Christ is not merely physical. It's a sign. It's a sign of God's thirst for our love, for our response. Indeed, he said it also on the cross when he was saving us and he was suffering on the cross. It's one of the last things he said, I thirst. It's one of the seven words of Jesus on the cross, I thirst. And that thirst was a physical thirst. The, the thirst that he had there at the well was a physical thirst. like his, He was parched and dry, but it was more than that. It was a thirst for a response from you and from me. It was a thirst of a, a res- for looking for a response from the Samaritan woman. And when she hears this, she's quite surprised, but she engages with him. She's ready to talk to Jesus. And you know, we too, we must, considering this thirst that God has for us, we must always be ready to engage with him. We must always be ready to pray, to be open to his grace. And we think about the most important thing in our life. What is the most important thing in our life? Is it success? Is it recognition? <coughs> is it good health? What is the most important thing in my life? And when we reflect on it, we see that the most important thing in our life, they are the bonds that we nurture 
the relationships, the bonds that you nurture in your family, the bonds that you nurture with your children, with your husband, and fundamentally all centered on that most fundamental of all bonds, which is our bond with God. Because we're not isolated uh, individuals with our own rights and our own deeds and our own nature. Yeah, today we're in a society where people speak about a lot, a lot about it's my right, it's my right to express myself as I want. It's as though we needed to kind of reach inside of us always about what we really want, what we really want leads to all this whole movement of women's rights. They have a right to do whatever because they desire it, they want it. But it doesn't seem to, it doesn't seem to underline the whole fundamental idea of bonds. Indeed, God himself is a, a series of bonds between God the Father and the Son and the relationship with the Holy Spirit. Like the whole Blessed Trinity is a series of relational bonds of love. And we too must be engaged in fomenting, bettering, purifying the bonds that exist in our life. And most fundamentally, we have to be ready to pray and to be open to that grace. And it would seem that here in this account, and I recommend you, you go back to this, to this account of the Samaritan woman. It's a beautifully, I mean, it's a rich account. I'm just, right now, just like, you know, reflecting on some of the words that appear there. Like, give me to drink. And certainly, she, in this account, is quite open. And maybe, as she hears him, this is the first time in her life in which her horizons are truly open in a way that, that she didn't realize that they could be opened. It's as though she wants more. Now, she wants to speak and to understand more deeply what her life is really all about. And it all starts with, give me to drink. Give me to drink. And that's, that's a re relational question. She needs to give him something. And she perceives something about him that is greater than all the other men that she's ever known. And the, but of course she sees this, but the only thing she can come up with is that, well, he must be a prophet. She says, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. And why did she say that? She didn't say, I perceive that you are a man. No, she's, or, or even a Jew. That was the first step. But then, upon continuing that conversation, she, I perceive that you are a prophet. So to be a prophet is greater than simply being a guy, a man, a Jew. It implies a mission. But even that was, was not really, Jesus is not just a prophet. I mean, he, he has elements of prophet, obviously, but he's much, much more than that. But she opened herself to that. Now, we don't know her name. She's just the Samaritan woman. And we sense from the account that she was going through a difficult time, especially with those five husbands that she had in tow and that was part of the head trash that she carried maybe they were very abusive to her maybe lacked respect for her I mean there must have been a reason why she had five husbands 
and she sounds like someone who could not really pin down any real decisions in her life and probably by the time she met Jesus she was in real crisis no doubt our Lord immediately perceived that both in his human nature she could see it in her face in her nervousness the shaking of the hands the worry she she showed outward signs of her unhappiness but with her faith in this man in front of her she was about to change her life she understood it was not too late even with five husbands even with five failed marriages it's as though there was a revolution afoot. And this happens in many lives. We have to have confidence that we can change. That your husband can change. That your children can change. Your friends can change. You look at the 20th century, there's so many beautiful stories of conversions. Like this guy, his name was Dutch Schultz. He was a New York gangster known for his brutality, but he was eventually converted. He spent some time in prison, but he was converted and even received uh, last rites on his deathbed. He asked for a priest. And uh, uh, conversions are possible. I suppose you could make a long list of conversions of the 20th century. And it's really quite beautiful to think that so many souls are received into the church on the Easter Vigil. Mm-hmm. Often when you hear about the church, people talk about people leaving the church and the, the numbers are going down and I don't know what, you know. But, but what's more beautiful in some way is how many people are changing, their hearts are changing, they're coming into the church. My understand, understanding is that in North America at least, it's actually not easy to f- not that easy to find the statistics, but around 200,000 adults are received into the church every year. About 200,000 horizons are opened. These are people that are not baptized. These are people that that had different lives. You even think somebody like Cardinal Francis Arinse from Nigeria, he converted. He converted as a young, young man, as a young, well, even as a teenager. He was baptized. And he became, eventually, the youngest bishop in the world, being ordained a bishop at the age of 32. And he eventually became a cardinal. He, you know, he had roles in the Holy See. He's quite elderly now. He's I don't know how old he is, but he's certainly in his late 80s, probably. And he was so dynamic. I remember meeting him, hearing him in meetings in the in uh, the Vatican. And I was surprised to see the other day that one of my favorite comedians on the Carol Burnett show, Tim Conway, is a convert. He became Catholic. You know? And he was like, he would just, we were just like, fall over laughing watching his shows where he'd play these like an old man who was completely out of it and and Carol Burnett could not you know she, she could not hold it together you know 
because he was so funny, you know. We would be in stitches. I don't know if Tim Conway means anything to you, but uh, I'm sure most of you, he means something, you know. He was a convert. Or Sir Alec Guinness, Obi-Wan Kenobi, became a Catholic. And he recounts how he was on a, a movie set in, I don't know what year, in the 50s or something like that, and he was playing the role of a priest in this movie that he was playing. So he was dressed in a cassock, and uh, on a break during the filming of this movie, a little French boy came up to him, took him by the hand, spoke to him in French, obviously thinking that he was a priest, and took him by the hand and took him to the village and was speaking in French the whole time and he didn't understand what the boy was saying. And the boy took him to the village church and he said, Monsieur l'abbé, Monsieur l'abbé, je veux me confesser. And he didn't understand what, he, what the boy... And then the little boy brought him to the confessional, put him in the confessional and the little boy <laughs> wanted to go and, uh, and he thought after... He was trying to say, no, 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 look, I can't, look, I'm, this is fake priest, I'm fake priest, I'm not a priest. I, I, but of course, the little boy didn't understand what he was saying. But he was so touched that a little boy would see, have so much trust in a stranger that there must be something to this church. <laughs> and uh, eventually he contacted the a priest or something, eventually went to a program to... You know, to learn about the faith. It's like going into an AA program or something like that. But, but no, but he eventually was received into the church. He wrote a beautiful memoir about it called uh, Blessings in Disguise. Mm-hmm. St. Josemaria said, If we Christians really lived in accordance with our faith, the greatest revolution of all times would take place. The effectiveness of our co-redemption depends on each one of us. You should meditate on this, he said. That's from Furrow 945. If we really lived in accordance with our faith. And we could go on listing all the conversions of the 20th century, 21st century, and, well, throughout the centuries as well. Do I understand that I have a role to play in making the church grow. Do I understand there are many, like Jesus now, that are thirsting for God? And Jesus thirsts for them, just as Jesus was thirsting for the soul of that Samaritan woman. He said, I thirst. Can you give me something to drink? I mean, that was a physical thirst. There was a f- he needed water because he was tired. But really, that is just an image of the deeper thirst that God has for souls. And we have to, like the Samaritan woman, give him to drink from our life. But it means we have to engage with him, hear what he's asking of us. And if we're not really engaged, if we don't really think we're all that valid instruments... We don't think we could bring about that greatest revolution of all times, that co-redemption really depends on us. We have, to, we have to refocus the machine, tweak it. Maybe, like this Samaritan woman, we're like in a midlife crisis. And it is good to consider that society interesting to consider, at least that society calls a midlife crisis a crisis, 
when in fact it's not really a crisis at all in fact you could say it's a normal natural moment in our life it's the passage from the first half of your life to the second half of your life I would say that most of you are in the second half of your life I know I am and that's a good thing to be in the second half of your life or maybe the you know last quarter <laughs> you know I'm in the last quarter you know that's always the most exciting part in a football game so we don't avoid it don't ignore it there's so much more to do there's so many points still to to gain to win against the enemy and uh, if we were ignored that would be a big mistake it's the biggest mistake you could make ignoring this second half of the game don't put it off embrace it and you'll be glad you did it's only really a crisis if you pretend it's not happening and the first thing to realize about what they call the midlife experience is this if you're having what they call the midlife crisis well you should be celebrating that because for most of human history you would have been dead by now you would have been dead by now I mean that's for sure if you're older than 30 you would have been dead by now it's not that the glass is half it's not half full and it's not half empty your cup overflows right now you and I if you're over 30 your cup overflows Are you having a midlife crisis or are you having a midlife opportunity? That's what the Samaritan woman was having. With 500, 500, with 500, no, with five husbands, I have a hard time saying that. Five husbands, not 500. Five husbands, she was definitely having a midlife opportunity. It's up to you to decide. And the Samaritan woman certainly decided. For the good. And I'm sure she became a real, true, authentic, dynamic follower of Jesus. Why? Because she, she went in through the open doors, through that horizon of the true goods that Jesus presented to her. She became a, an authentic follower of Jesus. Now in that, uh, that movie there, the recent series, uh, I don't remember what it's called, The Chosen or whatever it's called about the life of Jesus, they present the Samaritan woman as this kind of giddy, you know, kind of half-annoying woman, you know, who's always at the beck and call of whatever he says, you know. Okay, maybe she was like that, but... Uh, but what she was definitely after that was an apostle. And she went back to her village there in Sikar and she told everybody that she'd met this man and, and then they came out and you know, she was really an apostle. She must have, in such a dynamic way, represented that exchange with him. And her crisis, the crisis of her life, was displayed there to the Lord 
And it really was a midlife opportunity. She was sincere. She was honest. You know, she said she well, not that honest because she said, "Well, I have no husband." And he said, "Well, you're right. You have no husband, and the one you have right now is not is not yours." It's beautiful to think that, despite that kind of drama that she must have gone through, that she converted. And suddenly, she wanted the best for others. That's why she ran home. What are the typical signs of a midlife crisis? Remember, for us, it has to be a midlife opportunity. But there are signs that it's, let's say, not being an opportunity or that we're losing the opportunity or we're not embracing it. I was reading, reading this new book by Matthew Kelly in which he lists some of these signs. When, when you feel a bit off, when you feel a bit tired, uh, and he, you know, he questions, well, is it a crisis or not? He doesn't like to call it a crisis. He prefers to call it an opportunity. But there are signs that we're not making it into an opportunity. He gives a list. He says, well, maybe you feel trapped. Now, when you feel trapped, you're not doing anything. You kind of like, you don't know what you want. Your, di- your life doesn't seem to make sense anymore. The things that used to satisfy you no longer satisfy you. You're experiencing mild or severe depression or unusual mood swings. You have a growing sense that there must be more to life. Shifting sleep patterns. You don't feel like getting out of bed in the morning or you have trouble falling asleep at night. You start questioning the big decisions you have made. You look at your husband, you <laughs> I don't know. That's a midlife crisis. That's not good. You begin to question your priorities, your values, and what you want from life. You have trouble making even the smallest decisions. Should I put milk in my coffee? I don't know. Everything and everyone frustrates you, including yourself. Increased compulsivity around food, drugs, alcohol, Instagram, shopping, or anything you consider a relief from the constant and mounting anxiety. You have a sudden urge to lose weight, to get in shape, to look better, and to feel better. Is that good? No. Just suddenly say, okay, I'm going to lose 30 pounds now. Is it a crisis or is it a midlife opportunity? You get to decide, as the Samaritan woman decided. But often when I go over this passage, I often like to dwell on that passage of of Jesus or the phrase of Jesus who asks her to give him to drink. And we can reflect on how we can satiate God's thirst for our love. When we're going through a crisis like that, we have to think, the Lord is saying, give me, the, give me the drink. I need to be satiated by your response. And I'm opening up to you the opportunity. But we can 
all dwell on how with great patience Jesus leads the thirsty woman to make that confession. She says, I have no, I have no husband. And he got that confession out of her pretty fast. Before giving her the water that quenched the deepest thirst of her heart, Jesus sends her to go and look for her husband. He says, go, call your husband and come back here. I don't have a husband. And Jesus completes her act of anxiety, or her sincerity rather. You've told the truth. You do not have a husband because the one you had, you had five husbands, and now the one you have is not your husband. And when the Lord said that, I don't think he said it in a mocking tone or a derisive tone. He really seeks to elicit that confession, that trust in him. And she doesn't defend herself. She does not seek to escape. She accepts the light that is suddenly projected on her life. He shines a spotlight, a spotlight on her interior life, on her very conscience. And somewhere there, this makes her very happy. This made her want to change, made her want to be a disciple of his. Let's ask him for that desire to change. And whom, who can I help to change as well? We may have these valleys in our life, but the Lord encourages us always to go higher. He opens up horizons of greater sanctity, of greater love, of improving the bonds that we have with others to really become that better version of yourself, to rectify our intention always. And what we can ask him now is light. What are the bonds that need to be strengthened? that need to be made more true where we can give of ourselves more. And naturally, we'll have to begin with a bond with Him, with regular prayer to Him, opening our heart to Him, and letting Him speak to us, where we will certainly hear that same phrase. He will say to us, I thirst. And we can say to Him, I want satiate your love for me. Let's ask our Blessed Mother, who thirsts for us as well, she'll intercede for us so that we can have that dynamism and that cheerfulness in embracing that opportunity. I thank you, my God, for the good resolutions, affections, and inspirations you've communicated to me in this meditation. I ask you help to put them into effect. My Immaculate Mother, St. Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me.